0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. In this episode we're looking at Richard Nixon, Law and Order and the 1968 election. This is the first episode of a trilogy of shows that will be coming out over the coming months on the great man himself, Richard Milhouse Nixon. On November 5th, 1968, America elected Republican nominee Richard Nixon as their president. Nixon narrowly defeated Democratic candidate and current vice president, Hubert Humphrey, with right-wing independent candidate George Wallace a distant third. Nixon's victory came eight years after his defeat to John F. Kennedy and marked the first time a Republican had won election to the White House since Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1956, with Nixon being Eisenhower's running mate in that election. 1968 saw hot button issues such as the Vietnam War and the rise in protests, riots, and organized violence feature as key components of the election, with Nixon promising to bring law and order back to America and positioning himself as the champion of the silent majority.
1: It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to
0: you, we shall have order in the United States. Toby, can you start by just painting the picture of America during this time? What were some of the key social and political events of the late 60s that brought us to a Nixon presidency and one that was based around the message of law and order?
1: Well I think to really look at the 1968 election first we have to go to 1964 and the sort of unprecedented mandate and majority that Lyndon Johnson was able to win against Goldwater and what Johnson had is he he had the ability to bring in the Civil Rights Act at 64, the Voting Rights Act at 65, and this great swathe of of social justice programs um, that were the great society. But if you actually look at Johnson's victory, and and polling uh, suggests this, especially because a lot of down-ballot results were actually won by Republicans at that time, what you find out is that the, the, the majority was soft. It was not a majority for... Johnson's great, you know, civil rights and programs. It was for an establishment kind of majority. Another trend seemed to suggest that people were getting even more conservative. So, under so beneath this, you know, sort of great majority that Johnson had won, there was subterranean factors that suggested that people were changing. And then, then re- what really started to break apart Johnson's liberal consensus was the the riots the urban riots the the, the civil disobedience that followed from the civil rights like especially in the northern cities riots in detroit riots in newark riots that really really that and i think what we have to really consider is that who broke off from the liberal consensus in this period? It was urban working-class people who had formed part of FDR's majority as well, but now they were looking at these riots. They had become, you know, they were the richest people, richest citizens in the history of the world, you know. This is what the, the, the New Deal brought them. But now they were looking at these riots, from these African-Americans in these cities behind, you know, their television screens in their, in their suburbs or in, the, in these cities and they were feeling scared and they were feeling uncomfortable and they were now sort of the perfect fodder for people who no longer sort of talked about economic issues or issues of civil rights, but people who started to focus on issues of, you know, uh, law and order and, and, and sort of crime prevention.
0: And do you think things like the MLK assassination and the race riots that followed after that and the Robert Kennedy assassination kind of brought together this this atmosphere of where sort of middle-class Americans were watching, you know, this violence brought to their screens and that they felt like a, a lot unsafer and they, they felt the country was moving in a direction that they weren't recognizing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was really a sense of coming apart. But I think that the the Kennedy and... And especially the MLK assassinations they happened in 68 but even before 68 there was a sense that race was going to be the most important issue if you you look at the midterm elections Nixon and the Republicans actually ran on law and order and crime prevention and things like that and they were able to roll back many of the wins that Lyndon Johnson had in the House and the Senate so this is already beginning and then within the tumult of 68, as that year, you know, sort of carried on. Kennedy, for example, was was gaining a lot of momentum when he, he was running, um, well, I mean, first you have to say that Lyndon Johnson, obviously, did not run 68. His own personal political, um, sort of, p- political purpose was, 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 Started to fall away because not just of crime, but also because of the Vietnam War and the Tet Offensive and, and his increasing dogmatism in that area. So, what happened is that Johnson started to feel like he couldn't win the election. His, his, his credibility gap started to develop. So, and because of the, the, the anti war campaign of McCarthy, he, he started, decided to step down. And then soon Kennedy got into Robert Kennedy. what Robert Kennedy was able to to do or able to figure out is that he saw America as, as a sick society, as a society that was coming apart of the seams and and a society because not just of the crime but and the war, but a society that sort of needed a liberal saviour and he, he saw himself as, as this liberal saviour. But with, but once you get to six once you get to sixty eight and the campaign you start to see that the, the light that had been brought by the civil rights movement through individuals like Martin Luther King was started to be snuffed out. You know, the, in this period, it's really a switch between the, the, you know, the, the civil disobedience of the civil rights movement to the much more vigorous and I think polarizing um, impetus of black power. The riots in Detroit and the riots in Watts and the riots in Newark had brought even people who had been associated with Martin Luther King, like Stokey Carmichael, to say things like, you know, burn, baby, burn, you know, when he was um, looking at these riots because he felt, in many ways, alienated from the, the establishment society and that made him more and more radical. So but once you get to April in Memphis, and in the the tragedy of uh, the death of Martin Luther King, that that itself creates a series of riots, a series of riots in a hundred different cities, Mm. and again, you can, again, almost the central figure of this narrative even before Nixon is the, the, the urban working class guy who's gotten this middle class life because of the New Deal, and he's watching his television, and he's looking all these Black people, you know, destroying property, and uh, you know, um, and and the, and he he's he starts to empathize with with the police in this situation. So the the two fulcrums, the two main fulcrums of the of the FDR liberal consensus, the working class whites and the African Americans start to have a natural political antagonism to each other. Which is sort of, this is really the background of the Law and Order campaign that Nixon launched.
0: And of course, uh, during this time, we of course had the Democratic Convention riots in Chicago, where I believe the anti-war protesters were essentially sort of face-to-face with the police officers at of that time. And you had uh, a huge televised riots that was happening between the the, the, the protesters and the uh, the police. And of course, that was just another another uh, instance of america looking on at uh, at its tv sets and seeing you know young people young liberals um sort of railing up and not just protesting but getting into violent situations with people in authority and i imagine that just naturally played into the hand of this law and order um scheme from from the right
1: exactly i think you have to look at the the, the man on the street he's 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 doing well, I mean, he he perceives that he's doing his best, he's paying his taxes, and then you have you know the the black rioters, you have these these hippies, who are changing the the moral and cultural framework of his society, and he feels more and more alienated from it. And then Chicago, Chicago is, I mean, more than anything else, it was a sort of coliseum, the the the, the central almost a uh, scene of, of this, this whole narrative, in many ways, you, you, when you, when they go to Chicago, you have a, a protagonist and an antagonist, if you're the sort of <laughs> working class, um, urban person, you're watching this, you have Mayor Daly, who was the, the mayor of Chicago, and he, he's, and he knows that the, the, the yippies are going to come to Chicago, and they're going to have this, this March and he's he's doing everything, he's, he's setting up ordinances so that they can't sleep in the parks, he's, do, he's doing things, things like that and he's increasing, there's almost like thousands of police officers, he's ready for for, for this that is coming and the, the convention, Over while the convention is quite interesting what happens outside, re, because I mean especially in the election, Chicago or Illinois was lost to the Republicans but what actually happens is, outside of the convention is these clashes between the police and the protesters and the the police are hitting protesters they're hitting members they're hitting journalists they're grabbing campaign officials out of their dorms they're they're spraying tear gas there's a there's a scene where people are being hit and there's glass shards falling apart and then the police are still clubbing them they're clubbing men women and children in or men men and with scrim- then the the rioters start to shout the whole world is watching the whole world is watching the whole world is watching so it's the anti-war movement it's the urban crime rate it's all, all of these things are breaking apart this 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 liberal consensus that it held together since you know fdr
0: it's interesting you you sort of touched on goldwater there in 64 of course of course lost so crushingly in, in the election in '68, we have our, our own right-wing figure this time, George Wallace, who's uh, standing as an independent candidate. Could you just tell us a little bit about the, the role uh, George Wallace played in the '68 election in general, and more specifically in terms of the, the "law and order" uh, terminology dominating the campaign?
1: Well, I think Wallace—he was really reacting to the inc- the new raft of civil rights legislation. He in, in Alabama he had run on the plank of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, which is his inaugural speech. So you know the kind of guy that this was. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny and I say segregation now,
0: segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. (laughs)
1: And even at his rallies, when he began to run for the presidency, there was these fights that would break out between hippie protesters and then the, sort of the 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 sort of you know the normal urban people that he had watching him. And also, you know, he and staffed. He was his campaign was staffed by many people who were associated with the Ku Klux Klan, with the Nazi Brotherhood, people like that. So quite deviant in dark people. And you know, he was openly. Pro keeping the segregationist legislation that had dominated the the South since Reconstruction, so these were they were almost like carnival displays of this, you know, this this tension between the Southern whites, the the urban whites, and the African Americans, and what Wallace is able to do is Wallace recognizes that actually he. He can bring down both the the Republicans and the Democrats, and potentially throw the election into the Electoral College, which will give him the power to decide who becomes the president. So this this is why he charges uh, towards the presidency in this period.
0: So would you say it's fair to say that Wallace moved Nixon further to the right than he would have gone otherwise? Would you know would Nixon naturally kind of? Courted the more outrightly racist groups, kind of. Anyway, what was the relationship between how Nixon was trying to frame himself and, and the message that Wallace was presenting?
1: I think that once Wallace started to run, they knew that they would have. To, well, I mean, Wallace gave Nixon the ability to run on law and order plank, um, and I think once Wallace started to run, Nixon was able to think about what Wallace was doing and to able to frame his message as um, in the middle between Humphrey and Wallace. But Wallace was already in an extreme and Humphrey was already under the pressure because I mean, anyone could see that crime and law and order had become the main central issue in American political life. So Humphrey was always on the ropes. So Nixon was able to look at what Wallace was saying, you know, Wallace was advocating for repression and, and violence. And Nixon was just able to say, well, you know, when people asked Nixon whether Nixon, you know, believed Wallace was a racist, he said, I don't think um, Humphrey or Wallace is a racist. Mm-hmm. So he, he threw it out there and, and made and brought those two people on the same level. Is that those two are the extremes in this debate. And so Wallace gave Nixon the ability to really run on a quite austere law and order uh, platform.
0: Do you think, therefore, Nixon was kind of presenting himself as this sort of sensible man down the middle kind of thing then? Yeah, Nixon,
1: well, I think you have to go back to 1960 when we think about uh, the way Nixon interacted with, with race because the Nixon in 1960 was was uh, was actually, he had worked on the, the the late 50s legislation with Lyndon Johnson, although it was soft civil rights legislation, and they had a good record on civil rights, he had a good relationship with the NAACP, he had a friendship with Martin Luther King, but Eisenhower and Nixon, they did a sort of uh, audit of themselves when they lost the 60 election. And they, you know, they looked at how poor they had done with African-Americans and Nixon pretty much said to hell with them, you know. Mm -hmm. And so from that moment, and even if you go to 1964, even if you go to 1964, what you notice is that Goldwater ran um, because of Goldwater's ideological views on, you know, whether people should be should have to serve people they don't like goldwater ran against the 1964 civil rights legislation and nixon supported him in his campaign and nixon even though nixon had different views from goldwater he did not emphasize the difference between his views on race and goldwater's views on race so he stamped for, for goldwater quite vociferously which meant that he alienated the relationships with african-american to. Sort of, organizers and political leaders that he already had so he was already in a position where he did not have to kowtow to african-americans at the start of the 68 election but what wallace was able to do was to, to frame it in a situation where nixon could really be a law and order candidate
0: how do you think race sort of factored into the nixon's message on law and order did the Republicans use this phrase as a, as a coded me- message to white America, and how did law and order fit into the Southern strategy the Republicans were pushing?
1: I think that in terms of the codes, I mean, first you look at the way Wallace approached. He, you know, he he advocated explicitly for segregation. He advocated explicitly for hitting and and hurting people. He said things like. You know, in Alabama, we don't have these uh, riots because in Alabama, what happens is that someone picks up a brick, you shoot them in the head, <laughs> and you know, you ask them if uh, they want to pick up a brick again. You know. Yeah. So, I think Nixon was able to code the language. He he didn't say a lot things about blacks and and uh, whites and things like that. He was able to, to talk about things like states' rights nixon was able to talk about um other things as well
0: and nixon himself would sort of push the message that you know ordinary black folks they they want sort of civil obedience as well they want you know things to be safe and you know he was kind of pushing this idea that at least directly to the media that you know this is not a, a racial issue this is not about the the negro population this is you know about people who are you know breaking laws etc but I, I think it would be fair to say that there was at least some undercurrent from the right that uh there was a sort of nod, nod and a wink that you know part part of this issue is because you know the blacks are rising up and you know maybe, maybe they're getting a bit too big for the boots would, would you say that that's kind of fair even if it was on a, a more subtle level than than kind of outright saying it
1: i think there's you also have to think about the relationships that nixon was making in this period like- Like we've touched on, Nixon no longer had to develop a a sort of a campaign towards uh, African-Americans and he did not visit a lot of African-American areas in 68 but Nixon also cultivated a relationship with Strom Thurmond Thurmond who had been associated with the Dixiecrats who broke away from the Democratic Party in in the 48 election and Nixon was able to give Strom Thurmond some you know, indulgences. He said things like they would not, you know, push uh, federal busing legislation and they would not sort of um, try to enact the 64 or the implications of 64 and 65 legislation in the ways that the Lynn Johnson administration had. And Strump, although Strom Thurmond was attracted to the candidacy of Ronald Reagan, he would always say he would always say, "I'd love Reagan." Um, and a lot of Southerners were also attracted to the to, to the campaign of Reagan on on an ideological basis. Nixon was able to sort of really build that relationship with with a, a, an important stakeholder in the South, which allowed him entry into into many of the border states in '68 and much of the deep south would was won by by wallace but nixon's sort of um back backroom wrangling and and his rhetoric was it was allowed him to win a lot of the border states in the south
0: there's that interesting story in the michael w flam uh book law and order street crime civil unrest and the crisis of liberalism 1960s where the uh the story goes that uh uh, on a, a last minute trip to texas uh nixon uh, uh made an appeal to uh, mexican americans and said you know you you've not been rioting you know a kind of implicit uh, contrast to uh, african americans you know th- you know you're not the ones breaking the law and you know how unfair it is that you know that their you know squeaky wheel gets gets the grease you know it's it's the the black people who will get uh Will maybe get things out of this because they were the ones making the noise, rather than you, uh, well-behaved Mexican Americans. I don't know if that that maybe sums up uh, Nixon's uh, Nixon's thought on on some of the uh, the uh, the actions and uh, behaviour by African Americans during that time.
1: Yeah, I think Nixon was able to create this sense of a silent majority, a silent majority of people who were not rioting who were not sort of um articulating their dissent these this sort of this 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 it's a populist it's a populist mantra you know this 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 idea that there is a silent majority a sort of secret electorate that is that represents the people and it always has to be framed in counter distinction to a another demographic as well
0: Mm -hmm. um so with regards to to law and order did nixon or wallace actually kind of propose anything specific in, in in the way that they they talked about it or was it more sort of generalities about you know not allowing crime and stopping rioting and civil disobedience and violence against police did you know was Nixon able to actually push anything on the specifics of of, of policy
1: I think well Wallace really was he was much much more about rhetoric I think Nixon Nixon really focused on things like supreme the Supreme Court legislation that mm. had been passed by a uh, civil liberties-focused Supreme Court. He talked about creating a national coordinating center for anti-racism and uh, anti-crime. He also uh, advocated moderate gun control and moderate prison reform. Mm. But in many ways, these were policies that Lyndon Johnson had advocated himself. So... He wasn't that far removed in the policy sphere from the Liberals, but rhetorically he was able to really activate a a, a new base.
0: So can you talk a little bit about Nixon's rejection of the idea that poverty was the main reason for civil unrest and his kind of proposal instead that uh, we should revive traditional morality
1: i think there there has to be um, an understanding that liberals viewed poverty as the 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 main cause of of crime they they saw this as a structural issue it's a they were almost like social scientists in in, in that way and people like uh robert kennedy considered america to be a a, a sick society that was creating these things but what conservatives were able to do rhetorically is that they were able to frame crime as an an issue of personal responsibility these people had failed personally to not commit crimes and they were able to federalize the idea that you know that it was the federal government that had the ultimate say in crime prevention. And I think that was that what that was really able to do is, is is it gave these the urban working class people a clear message that the Conservatives understood their fears and they were not going to let African Americans off like the Liberals had been doing.
0: So um can we talk a little bit about Humphreys and the Democrats then and how, how did they respond to the issue of law and order and how was Humphreys seen by the public on that issue? I
1: mean, Herbert Humphrey had been a stalwart of liberal values and, and especially in you know the late 40s. But he, in the 50s and the 60s, to get where he could get to become Vice President of America, he really had to kowtow and and sort of become much more pragmatic in in order to reach the position that he he had gotten to even in 68 for example he started to have to talk to the southerners especially because the southerners feared robert kennedy much more than they feared him but and, and on the on the question of um, law and order he and his his staff they looked at polling and they 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 figured out that it was law and order and crime was the biggest issue of the of the election campaign. It wasn't Vietnam. The, Humphrey, because Humphrey was following the views of Lyndon Johnson, basically had the same policy on Vietnam that, that Nixon had. So law and order was going to be this big leveraging issue. And what the what Humphrey's people. Really figured out is that Humphrey really had to try to stay away from law, law and order. he in in the beginning he advocated um order and in, injustice and he talked about you know the liberal mantra of how crime was the how crime was caused by poverty. but he found out that pretty soon that people were not catching on to this message. So towards the end of the campaign, they just stopped talking about law and order completely and they also found out that the great society programs were not as um, popular as, as they perceived earlier and they stopped talking about many of those issues as well
0: Do you think then that this was a, this was a, a difficult one for Humphreys to win do you, do you think he was a I think he was a fairly damaged politician. You know, do, do, do we think he had the kind of... I mean, he did come close to winning the election. though I mean, it's easy to, as soon as someone loses an election to make, basically put the blame on them. But the, the election itself was pretty close. And, you know, a few, a few thousand votes in this county and a few thousand votes in that county. Maybe things would have changed ever so slightly. But do we think... <sighs> Do we think he was just the wrong candidate to represent liberalism in 68? Or do we think that the, the liberalism itself and the, the message of that time was just always sort of damaged goods by that point?
1: I mean, some people feel that Robert Kennedy would have won the election. And it, I mean, it's it's a hard counterfactual to really think about because mm. Kennedy's coalition and Kennedy had been known for law and order because he had been a pretty strict... Um, Sort of attorney general, but I think Kennedy was Kennedy's coalition had working class urban whites, and it had, but and it relied quite powerfully on African Americans. And Kennedy, you know, when Martin Luther King died, had seemed to empathize with the. He made a speech, and he seemed to empathize with the feelings of African Americans especially when they were reacting to this and one cannot know if kennedy wins the nomination does he have a narrative on law and order that can counter nixon i would think that because i mean if you look at Homer humphrey and you look at Ken- kennedy Homer humphrey had beco- been very well liked by african-americans he he pushed Viscerally against the Dixiecrats in in the late '40s, but it was a question of what have you done for us recently? Kennedy was the one who was able to capture the imagination of African Americans, and really, like African Americans, became slightly alienated from the process because they lost Martin Luther King, who was their favorite, you know, the, who was their favorite he was the figurehead wasn't he he was the figurehead and then he lost kennedy who was pretty much the favorite white guy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and humphrey humphrey was treated quite badly i think he would go to you know um, places to speak and anti war people would be saying things like dump the hump dump the hump mm-hmm. and he, he sometimes he would go to sort of meet with african american constituents, and he would also get some, you know, verbal attacks as well. So he was, in many ways, a, a, a really beaten-down candidate. And But then one wonders who better could have handled the situation, because although I think, well, I think if you were thinking about Kennedy and you were thinking about Humphrey, I think Kennedy, because he was running on an anti-war plank and he had the the love of African Americans he probably could have run and possibly beaten nixon but he wouldn't have beaten nixon on the subject of law and order kennedy would have had to run on the liberal view because you know the southerners were not supporting kennedy and um kennedy's own views on law and order had it, was basically a liberal view that you know America was a sick society that was creating these things. So Kennedy was not in a better position than Humphrey to run a law and order, but he perhaps was in a better position than Humphrey to win the election. I mean Humphrey got the bump towards the end because the anti-war people pretty much figured out that he would be better than Nixon and towards the end he he was also thinking about advocating for peace he 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 had been under Johnson's thumb throughout this period Uh, and but towards the end when he started to change his tone on Vietnam his polling started to improve and I think um, Humphrey's polling was low probably because he was he was unloved by many different uh, constituents or different bloc groups of the liberal consensus but when the final straight came they started to come home really Mm -hmm. and I think probably Kennedy would have been able to carry them through but only slightly because I think he would have more even more than Humphrey he would he would have been susceptible to what Wallace would have done in the northern states and he would not have been able to carry the sort of center ground that that Nixon was able to carry in the election
0: interesting they're talking about um, sort of a, a late surge by by humphrey um I believe uh, part of the push he got as well was because Nixon refused to do t v debates um with him as well after what happened in in nineteen sixty um How do you think Nixon, the candidate of sixty eight differed to the candidate of nineteen sixty. Do you think there was a, a a conscious shift in focusing more on style and presentation and not just on substance? I, I believe Nixon had kind of mentioned that maybe he'd he'd been maybe a little bit you know too policy heavy rather than actually trying to get his his message to resonate on a on a personal level with people in nineteen sixty.
1: Yeah, I think that Nixon really lost because he had not sorted out his image. In 1960 he did not understand um, the medium of of television and then he lost again in 62 and then he's saying that you know you you won't have Nixon uh, kick around anymore (laughs) because I'm gone yeah and then he's in the wilderness for a period he he sort of sticks his head out in uh, 64 to to try to see if there's any you know impetus for him but nothing's there but then and then he sort of moves to New York and works in a corporate law firm and is able to establish links with people and then it becomes quite clear that he's the person who can bridge the gap between the Goldwater people and the the liberal establishment or the eastern establishment because you know he had been vice president under Eisenhower and so he he, he was a he's a more crafty politician he was better able to bring the media in and to have discussions and I think he had, he had grown in, in in many ways so he was in a much better position but when he started to run in 68 he did run almost as an incumbent he tried to not to have as much publicity as maybe he could have had because his polling was so strong he was just trying to avoid getting into, into skirmishes so, so I would say that in terms of a uh, candidate, he had improved because he he, he got more pragmatic. He, he had a, he had a topic in law and order that that affected people much more viscerally than the pol- the deep policy discussions of, of 1960. So yeah, he, he was a candidate that was wiser and, and, and able to understand where people were and was able to understand branding better he and he had much more i think savvy brand branding people people like Roger Ailes who who had um pushed through a lot of the interesting sort of campaign advertising that they they did they did uh, an interesting cam- campaign advert where they had um you know a bunch of images of uh, american kids and, you know, he was trying to understand where they were. And then he had he had another one about, you know, sort of, you know, dissent is uh, important in the society, but it's... But he, he criticized dissent that was, was violent. So he was better able to really understand where the American people were, as opposed to the very detailed policy discussions and the foreign policy angle of 1960. I think there was, there was very little to distinguish the candidates in 1960. I think Nixon was quite resentful and uncomfortable because he felt that Kennedy was always lifting his ideas from him even before he was able to speak. But that was not the case with with Humphrey, who was who had a clear ideology, who had different ideological commitments on the issue with um law and order and and sort of nixon was, was savvier and he had a much more i think distinct brand in
0: 1968. so we, we've kind of touched on a little bit already that maybe this was potentially slightly bigger than just law and order but you know we law and order what was a defining defining feature of the 68 campaign uh Uh, Julia Azari, a Marquette University professor of political science, positioned the 1968 election as a referendum on eight years of democratic presidency. Would you agree that the 68 election was larger than just the topic of law and order, but also push back against the Great Society and the Vietnam War?
1: Well, I think that, in a sense, it was the fraying of the, the the. the groups that had made up the liberal consensus, you know, mm-hmm. by by the 60s, what had happened is that the 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 thing that had brought, you know, trade things like trade unions, things like increased economic growth that had brought a lot of people into the the middle class, meant that they would would be naturally antagonistic towards welfare policies that were not aimed at them education policies that were not aimed at them, voting policies that were not aimed at them. So these things became a, a wedge issue. And I would say that in terms of it being bigger than law and order, I would say that it, it isn't bigger than law and order because law and order was the central thing that really activated this um part of the liberal consensus to break off i think that it, what what the 60s brought on was that african americans especially lower um sort of working class and um lower class african americans they did not have the same material um and and sort of uh, civil rights needs that urban people did so that was really the, the 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 central tension running through this period.
0: So Nixon did win 68, and uh, something you and I were delighted at the time about. Um, <sighs> <laughs> so Nixon won 60, uh, 68, and obviously Law & Order was a key part of that. But after 68, Law & Order kind of no longer took center stage in national elections. Um, can you just give a, a maybe a, a bit of detail on, on why we didn't go back to that after 68?
1: It's interesting because if you look at the rate of crime in 1960, you know it it, it doubles over the decade into 1970 but it doesn't you know abate it it, mm. it increases even more into the 70s and into the 80s and you know by the i mean it's it's when you look at films about this period or films about crime in america they're usually in the 70s and the 80s not so much in the in the 1960s even though the 1960s is characterized by its urban riots so it is interesting that law and order became less of a political issue i would think that part of the reason is that once Republicans started to ha- hold the presidency, they realized that the law and order situation was much more difficult to tackle. Nixon himself, in almost an experiment, had looked at the the crime that was in Washington D.C. And Washington D.C. was one of the most, you know, crime affected mm-hmm. areas, and he tried to increase um, sort of funding for police, increase. Um, he even had sort of ideas about uh no knock you know sort of searches and houses and things like that and and even though he he increased all of these things crime in washington D.C. did not abate at all so they realized that that law and order was better handled by an opponent than someone who was an incumbent and they realized the the difficulties of incumbency they maybe they started to empathize with Lyndon Johnson's position, possibly. And I would also say that Law & Order came back in fits and starts. It came back in the whole Willie Horton thing. Um, You know, Willie Horton was a guy who broke into a house and committed a crime, raped a a man's wife, and was placed on... uh, the, the uh I mean, prob- he was
0: probation or what, what, he was
1: he was he was um sent to prison and put okay. on the, the the waiting list for execution for right. some many of the crimes that he uh, he had committed and that became a, a big issue because the the HW Bush campaign under Alapp Warsaw tried to bring um Dukakis and say that Duk- because Dukakis had uh, kept um, Willie Horton from being you know executed that it, Willie Horton was a, a sign of Dukakis's own civil liberties and anti uh, law and order views and then by the early 90s the, the the Democrats seemed to to have their own law and order president because Bill Clinton pushed through the crime bill but yep. law and order Clearly, it was no longer a just a Republican issue, and clearly, the Republicans have figured out that that it it was not an an issue that could activate the a political constituency in the way that it was able to in the nineteen sixties.
0: Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that you know the seventies you have you know the economic issues, the energy crisis. You know, we obviously have we have Watergate, and this idea of being able to trust people in power and then you know as you say you know we have we have crime and we have issues in america but you know as as america becomes very uh conservative in, in the 80s and as you know reagan takes to power and as they point you know tougher conservative judges uh, i believe that a number of prisoners tripled from half a million in 1980 to 1.5 million in 1994 and you know it's I, I, you know obviously after the crime bill with, with with Clinton as well, you know it it is interesting, as you say, even if it's not the you know a wallace type candidate can kind of propose this idea and kind of shift an election that way, it is in the conscience of political people without necessarily being the singular issue which is going to drive an election, as you say,
1: yeah, like I guess you say like it not only is in the consciousness, it definitely changed policy like in terms of um federalizing the because they because the 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 liberals had really focused on what people could do in terms of local crime prevention but in terms of federalizing the prison uh industrial complex uh, certainly this was a the big result of the law and order campaigns and you know, one of the consequences of that is in a much increased, much inflated uh, prison p- population. And, uh, you know, so and another consequence of that is is probably a broad consensus on, on the need for law and order.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, you, uh, do you think it's fair to say then that there is a, a lasting legacy of the 68 election w- with this shift towards the term law and order, and even if it's not as we're saying, you know, the single issue, it's sort of been encompassed throughout American politics now. And, you know, there is a a clear move in that direction ever since.
1: Yeah, I, I, w- I would certainly say so.
0: From Toby, uh, Richard Milhouse, Nixon and myself, thank you very much for listening. We will have another show for you in the near future. And we will also um, have a continuation of our Nixon trilogy in the coming months as well. Um, so we have uh, Nixon and Watergate, and I also believe we have Nixon in China. Is that right, Toby?
1: Um, yeah, so we're going to do Nixon in China because it it is one of his, you know, central achievements. And then we're going to watch him, you know, sort of ban and <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yes, a very very dark time in our uh, in our lives. When uh, I I remember it well, Toby. We when we were still young, when uh, Nixon was. Uh, uh, marched out of the, the, the White House. Sad times, indeed. Uh, right, from... Uh, <laughs> if, only we were, if only we were actually alive to vote for Nixon, what thrill that would have been for both of us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would have looked at the states that Wallace was, was trying to win. Because actually, Wallace purposely ran in some states where he couldn't win at all, but just mm-hmm. to bring the Republicans total down so right. that he would be... Able to try to be being the being the kingmaker, so I, I would have tried to counter Wallace, uh, <laughs> and I would have shifted uh, people from different states into those states <laughs> just so I could uh, make sure that Nixon won the electoral college. Yeah.
0: Are you saying you would have bused in people to uh, to uh, help Nixon?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm saying that I'm against busing, <laughs> but not for well not for electoral uh... <laughs> 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 wins for, for uh... Nixon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right well um thank yeah so that's coming in the near future and from uh from toby and myself thank you very much for listening and if you can subscribe to the podcast we'd really appreciate it. um thank you and we'll have another episode for you in the near future goodbye Bye.